part of what he's talking about is what it means to be liberally educated. Gen Zers are showing up in droves. <laughs> Most of adult existence is just struggling to get through 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. The distance you've tried to create between yourself and the world falls away, and you are left exposed to the beauty and horror of mortal consciousness. Someone once called irony the song of a bird that has come to love its cage. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Docapil. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I am Trinity Klomperens. And this is Water. Which is what we're going to be talking about today. And incidentally, this is actually water. He is drinking water right <laughs> now. We're all I, in the same room. I can confirm that. How yes. amazing. So this is a really special podcast for us because this is the first time that we, instead of recording thousands of miles apart, we're actually recording six inches apart, which is actually almost too much of a change. We're pretty crammed in the same room here. The proximity of it is alarming. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of think that it really warrants a really profound question for you both actually the fact that we're all in the same room together mm-hmm. who's, okay. who's seen the new minion movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, not no. me i've not seen it um i have not seen it but there's something about it that is really interesting to me and that is that its domestic gross has now surpassed the worldwide gross at the box office it has broken world records, and it's had one of the highest grossing opening weekends of any animated film. But what's really interesting about it is the reason why it's so high grossing. And the reason is, is because kids, well, Gen Zers, are dressing up in tuxedos and showing up to the theater in droves and cheering maniacally, just cra- like crazy. I have seen videos of people they're s- moshing. They're so they're excited They're gathering about it. in circles and jumping up and down at the front of the theater. Right. Well, Amazing. The, th- the thing yeah. is, it's become like a whole meme culture. They've memed the heck out of the rise of Gru. But what's funny about it is that the reason why they're being so excited about it is actually an, an, an ironic stance because it's Gen Z humor to be ironic about things. And... Uh, what, why the reason the whole joke of why they are going crazy over the rise of Gru is precisely because the rise of Gru or minions is obviously just kind of a crappy cash grab. In fact, it's like the apotheosis of crappy cash grabs. Yeah. And because it is so ar- archetypically bad, they decided to go in the opposite direction and dress up in tuxedos and treat it like it's a super big deal. And so the funny thing is that Sony has no idea, like has not caught on to this at all. Like they were talking, there was a movie called Morbius, which came out a while ago, which the the Gen it's Zers Morbin time. We're like memeing the heck out of it, thinking about how great it was when it really wasn't. And then Sony thought that they were being serious, and then re-released it, and it was the hugest box office flop ever. Um, I'm consulting my Gen Z or brother who knows all of this cult- cultural stuff. I love how this became like a newscast. Gen Zers <laughs> are showing up in droves. <laughs> No, but there's a point. There's a point to this because today we're going to be talking about David Foster Wallace, particularly his video called "This Is Water," which was actually originally a, Kenya, a, a commencement speech 
at Kenyon College delivered in 2005. Had any of you guys heard of David Foster Wallace? No. Before? No. I didn't know that name. Did not know that. Yeah. I didn't know much about him either. I stumbled across him and I became really, really interested in him. Um, because he published an essay in 1993 on the subject of irony that really grabbed my attention. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Wallace, if that's okay, and then we'll kind of like jump into what this this whole uh, this particular speech is about. So Wallace was born um, kind of mid-century, I think like 1962 or something. He he majored in English and philosophy, and he became a teacher, and he was very much a humanities guy. And uh, he was chronically depressed, extremely depressed, to the point where he actually committed suicide in 2008. And part of the reason why, at least the headline story, is that he was taken off his depression medications. But I think that it was something actually deeper than that. And it has something to do with an essay that he published back in 1993. Now, the essay that he published was called E Pluribus Unum, Television and U.S. Fiction. And what Wallace was talking about during that time is he was criticizing, or I don't know if you would call it criticizing, but he was observing a certain state or stasis in U.S. fiction, which he saw as problematic. And that was that there was a certain attitude towards the world, which was almost entirely characterized by cynicism, but it was deeper than that. And so the idea of being ironic about something, you know, not taking something seriously, you know, pretending to be really earnest about something, but really you're being jokingly earnest about something, is something that kind of became avant-garde with like authors like Thomas Pynchon in the, in the you know, 60s and 70s. But that became mainstream in U.S. culture to the point where it was showing up in things like the David Letterman show and Pepsi commercials. And Wallace was observing this. And what I mean by that is that um, commercials and television at that time were referring to the fact that they were self-indulgent. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. like, we could say that's dated, but it's actually just gotten worse since then. Um... Because, I mean, you see that, like, in, t in in Disney films all the time. What was it like in Mo Moana, where Moana's like, I'm not a princess, and Maui says, oh, no, if you have an animal sidekick, you're a princess. Yep. And it's like, ah, ha, 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 slap the knee. That's a joke <laughs> about Disney movies. And you get to feel clever about it. And so this was actually happening back in 1993, and Wallace was saying, this is, this is actually problematic, because clearly... The U.S. population isn't stupid. These aren't mm -hmm. dumb people who are consuming these things. But the TV itself is not really that, you know, doesn't require a lot of intelligence. You right. don't have to be, it doesn't matter how smart you are, anyone can consume U.S. media. Um, but the problem with that is that they want to be able to appeal to people of all kinds of of intelligence, levels of intelligence. So in or, instead of trying to tell a more sophisticated form of art, they simply become self-referential about themselves so that the people who want to feel more clever can feel more clever by being like, ha, it's all a joke. And they, you know, for Wallace, that was a problem because as a fiction writer, that had encapsulated his genre. And he had gotten to the point where even he, as a writer, was probably in an intelligent writer, was more interested in, say, just watching the lowest common denominator on TV and just vegging instead of reading maybe a more sophisticated novel. And, you know, he wanted to go back and he 
for essentially he wanted to be Charles Dickens because mm-hmm. what was mainstream at the Charles Dickens time was Charles Dickens, right? Except he was writing pretty profound and intelligent stuff. And the same thing was like Dostoevsky, who was now considered a great writer, was really just a popular writer at the time mm-hmm. because people had a different, at least it appeared, an appetite for intelligent, difficult work. Or like the fact that Greek tragedies, which we now consider to be some of the greatest literature of all time, was literally just the blockbuster movies of the time. Or like Shakespeare being right. the yeah. the popular media of his time was you go watch a Shakespeare play, which now is considered just like the most highbrow of highbrow mm-hmm. literature. Yeah, and what Wallace is saying is like it's not that people have gotten more dumb. That's right. not the thing. Um, it's that he would like it if we could to be able to engage gauge in long periods of text to sit in silence for long periods of time to listen to complex music and i feel like we have the intelligence to consume that but we don't want to because we're so addicted to the immediacy of images and we're not happy with that so what television does is is it becomes ironic mm-hmm. to satisfy our appetite for something maybe a little bit more sophisticated I think it also sometimes needs to become ironic in order to cover up the fact that we're just repeating the same stories that have already been told. And I think a lot of that has to do with what you're saying about not being able to sit in silence. So it's kind of the idea that you constantly have to be creating something. You constantly have to be putting something out there. You constantly have to be saying something even if it's just something it doesn't even need to be new it just has Mm -hmm. to be so that's why you see all these reruns of other of the same movie or you see um, that yeah kind of what i'm thinking about like with disney and pixar and how they're just doing the same movies but just live action or they're doing the same movies but just with different characters Mm -hmm. yeah no definitely like maybe there was a time and maybe this is just the imagined past, really, where people were enchanted by things. They could, like, they were, like, Toy Story. Wow, that was amazing. And now it's just like, do you remember? Do you remember The Princess Bride? Funny thing. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> Wasn't that a good time? And we're like, oh, yeah, that was a great... Uh, but, yeah. Um, anyway. Don't you just wish they'd make a carbon copy? And <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's just... It's so self-referential and inbred. Um but anyway, this was Wallace's problem. And his his question, I think, and maybe I'm extrapolating here, is how can you write intelligent, profound, stimulating literature and still be accessible and not capitulate to either elitism or the superficial fast food style art, which characterizes much of pop culture today? And for lack of a better word, I have to say vulgar, although Wallace wouldn't like that word and I don't like that word either because that's part of the problem is that, you know, if you try to become more sophisticated, then it just becomes elitism. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's something I noticed as an English major in college is that once we got somewhere in like the 20s, which really T.S. Eliot started this, it's like there became a divide between like great literature, which is like Eliot, the wasteland, you know. And, or sophisticated literature that later became things like Pynchon, for example, and stuff like Stephen King, which is like, that's what the masses write. Pop J- literature. J.K. J- Rowling. There's a, there's a divide between. And I feel like that's, maybe that's new, maybe it's not. I don't know. But Wallace was trying to reconcile this, and he felt like he couldn't speak intelligently about people without assuming a position which he called moralistic finger-wagging, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And that was part of because of the problem of irony, because everyone has to be ironic about something. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to play a couple clips here from an interview that he gave in 2003, because he's very verbose, and maybe that's part of his problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think this kind of like summarizes some of the ideas that he has really well. Very often, humor is a response to things that are difficult. In the, in the U.S., in the U.S., there's a strange situation where, in some respects, humor and and irony are are political responses and they're redemptive. And in in, in another sense, particularly in popular entertainment, irony and a kind of dark humor can become a way of it's a it it it's pretending to protest when it really isn't. Someone someone once called irony the song of a bird that has come to love its cage. It can be both a wake-up call and, it can, and an anesthetic. The easiest way to talk about it would be that for 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 the upper middle class in the U.S., um, particularly younger people, things are often materially very comfortable, and 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 there's often a there there's also often a great sadness and emptiness. I I had started that book after a couple of people, not close friends, but people I knew who were my age had had committed suicide and it just became obvious that something was going on. There's a particular ethos in U.S. culture, especially in um, entertainment and marketing culture, that very much appeals to people as individuals, that you don't have to be devoted or subservient subservient to anything else. Um, There is no larger good than your own good and your own happiness. The, The root in English of addict is the Latin adicere, which, which means um, which means religious devotion. We all we all worship, and we all have a religious impulse. We we um, we can choose to an extent what we worship, but the myth that we worship nothing and give ourselves away to nothing is simply simply sets us up to give ourselves away to something different. For instance, pleasure. Or, or, or drugs, or the idea of having a lot of money and being able to buy nice stuff. So anyway, I feel like what he's talking about, even though he is technically, I guess, a boomer, this sort of generation that he's speaking to is really our generation. Mm-hmm. You know, and it definitely related to me or resonated with me for that reason. Yeah, and I think it is interesting what he's talking about, the idea that culture can respond to pain and suffering and not not just culture necessarily but individuals respond to pain and hardship through humor a lot of the time i think that that is very true not only on an individual level but i guess i gave it away but on a cultural level mm-hmm. because i think that different cultures respond differently and i what was just sticking out to me in my mind was i know you mentioned greece earlier and it actually does remind me of that when in golden age greece you know you have Arete, everybody's trying to be the best version of humanity, right? And then I think that that culture's response to that eventually was the Hellenistic era. It was showing things the way that they are. It was showing people who are beaten and hurt and finally making statues of of a, a boxer who's been beaten, you know? And I think that that is one response, is to show things the way that they actually are and then another response is just to make fun of the perfect statue of the person standing there who's 
you know, the perfect example of arete, of, of heroicness, and then to just kind of throw tomatoes at it or just, just make fun of it. And mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of what he's talking about is I think that is our culture's response. I think that that is the way that our culture has shifted. That's what the United States does. And I, I don't know if that's true for other cultures as well, but I think that the Internet has something to do with that. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but mm-hmm. I, I think it just makes it easier to use humor as your escape. And to use it as the way to make fun of the entertainment and marketing that he's talking about. I think it's just the easiest way to escape that. Yeah, if you like, and maybe this is kind of an example in your vein and tell me if this is right. But like if you were to go, if you were an artist or a sculptor, let's say, and you wanted to make a statue in, say, the Hellenistic style or just like a really beautiful statue where you know, you were just really, really precise and everything, and you put that in a museum, then that would be interpreted like, well, it's a commentary or, Mm -hmm. you know, about Mm -hmm. the Hellenistic era or something about idealism or whatever. And, you know, and that's really the only way that people would get meaning out of it. Whereas if you just got a banana and taped it to a wall, you could sell that for $2 billion, uh, which is an actual art piece in like a museum, you can look it up. The banana taped to a wall. No, actually, I think somebody did that as a prank. They they yeah. went in and they taped the banana to a wall, and then some people just started like it became worth a lot of money. And they put a little plaque next to it. It right. was a fake plaque, but then people oh. started crowding around it, and they were like, "Wow!" Well, yeah, well, because people there's an artistic movement that's surrounded around like actually the world we live in is just it's like absurd i'm a it's a plastic barbie in a plastic barbie world right yeah. you know nothing is real it's so consumer everything is kind of like everything's a brand so art should reflect that and everyone is trying to trick you and everyone is lying exactly. to you so the thing that you can do to avoid being tricked is to make fun of it because yeah. then you're in on the joke you're not the person who's the butt of the joke you're actually part of it well cuz if you're if you're terrified that everything might be meaningless, then the only thing you can do, I think, is make fun of everything. Um, because that's the way you give meaning to anything. If you think that everything in the world is completely pointless, then at least you can laugh at it. At least you can say it's absurd. And then at least you're laughing and then you're not miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is partially what uh, Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot is doing. He is saying, yeah, okay, the world doesn't mean anything. There's nothing important. But we can kind of laugh about it. (laughs) At least we can say it's absurd, which is really where absurdism comes from. And I think it's really telling that Gen Z humor tends to be absurdist because that stems from a fundamental fear that everything is actually meaningless and the only thing you can do then is laugh at it. Yeah. This is cheerful. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so after approximately 27 minutes and 25 seconds of <laughs> preliminaries, we are now arriving at the feature presentation, which is his 2005 Kenyan address, This is Water, which was later turned into a YouTube video, which you can watch on YouTube, that garnered, I think, about 900,000 views. Um, and it's turned into a short film. The original address is about... Uh, I think 20, 30 minutes long. So he opens up with an anecdote. There are these two young fish swimming along. 
and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? And so the beginning of this anecdote starts as his uh, segue into the point of the fish story. He says, the point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important reality realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. That may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense. So you can see he's already kind of adding little disclaimers about, I'm trying to just say, you know, this is true, but I also have to give in a concession to the fact that you're all just tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. But central to the address is Wallace gives the graduating class of 2005 at Kenyon College, a rather maybe uh, pessimistic view of adult life, mm -hmm. which is not, uh, absolutely not uh, uh, customary for something, for something like that to be heard at a graduation ceremony. I mm -hmm. mean, we've all been to graduation ceremonies where you know what they're like. They're always going to tell you how you're going to be doctors and physicians and change the world and yada, yada, yada. Um, and how life is going to be essentially just inspirational for you and you should feel good about yourself. Whereas Wallace just kind of deflates all of that and says, actually, no, most of adult existence is just struggling to get through 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. Yep. You know, you go through your white collar job and you're sitting through traffic and you're trying to buy groceries and he goes through this whole spiel of like you going through this 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 glaring, gaudy uh, uh, grocery store with the flickering fluorescent lights and the angry mom who's arguing with the cashier up front and everyone's just dead-eyed and, you know, just wants to get out of there. And it's basically just... and To just be there is like an insult to your humanity. And you can't think of anything else but to, to, but to get out of there. But everybody else is in the exact same position. And so he's describing basically the 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 um, the grievances of modern American consumerist lifestyle, which isn't even consumerist for most people. It's just like what you got to do to survive. It's just yeah. life of suburbia. And then he's talking about all of the negative thoughts that people have. And he challenges that and says, that's the default setting. The default setting is to assume that you're the center of the universe and that everybody else is just in your way. And then he says, well, let's consider an alternative story. Let's actually look at these people and what their lives actually might be. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way. It's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. Again. Please don't think I'm giving you moral advice or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it. 
because it's hard. It takes will and effort. And if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if and people kind of chuckle when he says this, and he says, okay, not all of these situations are likely, but it's also not impossible. And what's true is you get to choose how you're going to see what's happening around you. And his conclusion is that you can live in this hellish consumerist landscape and experience it not simply as meaningful, but sacred because of the story you choose to tell about yourself and about your surroundings, about the people around you. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water, this is water. And I think perhaps what I find most interesting about the commencement is that he, he starts with that fish story and they ask what the hell is water <laughs> and he goes on to say I will not tell you I, I'm not here to tell you what water is <laughs> I'm not here to tell you that I am the wise old fish that I know that you know what any water of the is. answers mm -hmm. right but at the same time he goes through this entire speech and he goes through these problems that you will have and how your life will be mundane and you will uh like raymond was saying how this is what your day-to-day -day will look like and then he says at the end after discussing how you combat that default setting i guess in your brain his ultimate solution is i guess we just have to keep repeating to ourselves over and over again this is water this is water but i guess my question there is if he starts by saying he doesn't know what water is and then goes on 
to say, here are some ways I think you can fix this, but I won't tell you that it is the truth. What does he mean when he says that we need to keep repeating to ourselves that this is water? What is water? I don't feel like he's answered that. Okay, so he actually, this isn't in the video, but he talks about this a little bit more in the full text of the speech. Um, Part of what he's talking about is what it means to be liberally educated, right? So he's, he's partial, I mean, it's a commencement address, so he is talking about education. And he, at the beginning, talks about how, okay, so when people say, oh, a liberal arts education is teaching you how to think, and he's like, what does that really mean? Nobody knows what that means. But that he, over time, has realized that what he thinks is true is that to be liberally educated and to learn how to think doesn't actually mean learning how to think as much as it means learning how to choose what you think, or in other words, how to be aware of yourself, how to be self-aware. Um, and if you are conscious of your own consciousness, right? So if you can make decisions about the way that you think about the world, then that's to him a kind of freedom. And that's, I mean, liberal, liberal education, liberal means free. So liberal arts, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important then the idea of being free to choose what you think about the world. Um, that's important in connection with the fact that he stresses that the stories you tell yourself about the people around you probably aren't true, but he says they're not impossible. So it's important that there's maybe truth to them. And also maybe your assumptions about them are not any more likely to be true. Right. They're just worse. Yeah. Yeah. And that you can tell good stories, uplifting stories about the people around you. And that that really the person that's good for is for you. It doesn't help the people around you. Probably, necessarily. Well, it might. I mean, but that's the thing. Is that, like, that's not the point, though. Yeah, yeah. It, what it does is it makes you better, and it makes your attitude better, and that's so clearly a better way to view the world, but I think it's fascinating that he keeps telling you, he keeps pulling that back. He keeps saying, now, I'm not actually saying that you need to view the world that way. I'm not saying that you should think of people at their best. I'm not saying that you should tell the best stories about the people around you. But you, but you could, which is Trent, exactly what you were saying. That he says, I'm not going to tell you what water is. And the last words of the speech are, this is water, this is water. Mm-hmm. So it seems like he's conflicted. Or maybe he's not. Maybe he's just afraid. Maybe he's just afraid to say what the truth is. Um, but there's that duality through the whole speech. That he tells you something that's true, and then he walks it back. And then he tells you something that's true, and he walks it back. Right, and that's exactly what he says here. And I'll quote this. He again, he pulls back after he said all of these things about like the sacredness of the experience that he has. He says, not that all that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. But here's something else that's true in the day to day trenches of adult life. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship 
be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, paragraphs, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Look, the insidious thing is not that these forms of worship are evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They're, they are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value and ever, and without ever being fully aware of what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being truly able to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad of petty little unsexy ways day after day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty excellent. Okay, really fast. One thing that, that just immediately made me think of, the last line where he talks about the alternative being unconsciousness, um, lots of similarities to Jordan Peterson, which I, I don't want to take us down that whole rabbit trail, except to say that I think it's really interesting. I just saw Dr. Peterson give the commencement address at Hillsdale College um, this last May. So gel. Yeah, it was pretty great. I'm really say. jelly. <laughs> um, and his speech, we talked earlier about how uh, Wallace's speech is interesting because normally a commencement address is really uplifting, and he basically says you're going to suffer. And uh, Dr. Peterson's address at Hillsdale was exactly the same thing. He was like, listen, you're going to suffer, and you don't, you can't even imagine how much you're going to suffer, which got an interesting reaction from the audience because... Everybody kind of didn't know what to do with that. I mean, lots of them didn't know what to do with that because you ex have a certain expectation about a commencement address and he says you're going to suffer. Uh, and the, the connection that I want to make there is he's, uh, Wallace here in that quote talks about um, unconsciousness versus consciousness being the thing, being asleep versus being awake, which is exactly what Jordan Peterson says, right? That you want to be awake, um, that you want to be f fully participate in being and that being means suffering, and that means being awake to your suffering, but that you need to face that suffering by being awake, and that that's the only way to garner meaning in your life, which is exactly what Wallace is saying here. He's making the exact same point about unconsciousness and consciousness, I think. But here's the thing, though. Um, what seems to me to be the case is that his argument is saying that when you look around at the hellscape of consumer at a, at a grocery store at you know in the evening after work and you're looking at just the misery uh that is happening all around you and you choose to see that experience as sacred you choose to see the people around you as sacred 
I mean, that's a religious statement mm-hmm. because you're saying you ought to act as if everyone around you is made in the image of God, essentially. But on the same vein, he constantly insists this isn't religious. This is not about religion. I'm not being dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Why? I think what I was just thinking about was that both of those messages are essentially trying to prove practically and secularly why you ought to be kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, be kind. And I can't tell you that you should. <laughs> I can't tell you exactly why. But, but also you but should. But it'll help you. It'll help you to be kind. You know? And it's it's like what you're saying. It's treat everyone as if they are made in the image of God. But not because they actually hold value. But because it's going to help you to have a better day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that isn't necessarily bad if that's your first step. But is that actually true? Is it true that they don't actually hold value and that you ought to treat them that way simply because it will help you? Yeah, Yeah. you know, I think that there is kind of a change in the attitude towards religion, at least recently today. And the sentiment is not anti-religious at all. Um, it's actually like, oh no, religion is very beneficial and positive for society. What they don't say is that religion is true. Like, this is true. You are made in the image of God. It's like, no, just like, and this is what he says. So what are we going to make of this quote? The only thing that is capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. He says, this isn't about what life after death. This is about life before death. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, here's the big question, because he says that, but then he also says this isn't religion. This isn't about religion. He says this is about who you worship, but it's not about religion. So my question is, how is he defining religion? And actually, this is a conversation I've had with a few people, and we all had different definitions. So I don't think there is a general consensus on what religion actually is. People think about it very differently because people have had very different experiences with it. Yeah. But I think I've determined my definition of it would actually have to do with who you worship. It's what what do you center your life around and how do you structure... What do you structure your life around? And whatever that is, is your religion, Mm -hmm. necessarily, I think. Right. Well, people, I guess, coming from a certain corner of cultural milieu may may hesitate to use the word religion simply because of the baggage that comes with it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, it just means a certain thing. It means a certain aesthetic, I guess, you know, a kind of a musty church um, and a fundamentalist sermon or something like that. And they just don't want to associate with that instead of actually kind of talking about, okay, well, what does religion actually mean, though? And even Christians do this, and there's been kind of a trend, I guess, of people saying, some people saying, you know, I'm, I am I hate religion, but I love Jesus. Or I say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, or I'm a Christ follower. Mm-hmm. Which, it's some, I also, like, I kind of ridiculed that a little bit at some point, but also we're tired of ridiculing everything, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, like, there is a makes, it does make sense because the original meaning of the word Christian was just, like, that's what it meant, like, a Christ follower. And in other in other languages, when you translate it, it is translated as Christ follower. So sometimes, so maybe people are really being authentic about that. And they're saying, like, we want to reinvent the language so that when we say what we mean, people actually understand what we mean. Mm-hmm. 
But it's not that simple, you know, it's not easy. And I think Wallace understood that it was not easy for you to do that. Um, I don't, but it, it's, it's also like, I think that he's probably not willing to really embrace the, any kind of like capital T truth, you're made in the image of God. He can't say it. Right. And I think that, I mean, that goes back to the problem of irony, right? Is that I'm living in a culture which has pretty much wholly embraced this attitude towards irony. Whereas, where if I tried to say something sincere, it just wouldn't be received. I mean, I would just get chased out of town. I would get, I would get marked off as an Alan Bloom type or something like that. And, and so I think that his suicide is actually a testimony to the fact that he could not resolve the problem. Yeah. You know? Well, actually, that makes me think of another writer who I think is sort of similar to David Foster Wallace, um, John Green, who I think you said earlier has said that he's influenced Yes, he, he has actually say, stated that one of his, one of his influences is David Foster Wallace. So that's a pretty intuitive connection. Um, I mean, I mean, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just a correct connection. It's just correct. Yeah, I'm just correct is what we're saying here. Um, so John Green, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure you all do. Um, he wrote The Fault in Our Stars and uh, most recently Turtles All the Way Down. The Anthropocene reviewed a bunch of uh, YA novels. Um, and he would term himself as an existentialist, um, which we've talked about existentialism a lot on the podcast before. Um, but he recently wrote a book called The Anthropocene Reviewed. And in The Anthropocene Reviewed, he writes essays that are uh, reviewing different aspects of a human-centered planet on a five-star scale. Um, and before it was a book, it was a podcast and in the podcast, he has one essay on whispering that I thought was really helpful. Um, I'm going to read a portion of it, but the first part of it, I think this context is important, is he tells this story about his daughter and how John Green is a really anxious person. Um, he's always concerned about making places, making it to places on time. And he was trying to get his daughter out the door to school one morning and his little daughter who, you know, is just barely, she's like two or three or something. Um, she says, Daddy, can I, can I tell you a secret? And he leans toward her and she whispers something to him. And he didn't even know that she could whisper. And he's like, he says that her whispering to him is just her making space for herself in a busy and loud world in which her dad is too busy to, to want to stop and listen to her whispering. So that's his setup. And then he tells another story. Um... I'll read a portion of the essay. He says, So when I was a kid, I didn't attend church often. My family wasn't particularly religious, but someone told me when I was little that God's voice comes to people in a whisper. In many parts of the Bible, as in life, whispers mislead and wrongly condemn. But there is some scriptural justification to the idea that God's voice can be quiet. One of my favorite lines from the Bible is First is Kings 19.12. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. That's how the Bible I read translates it anyway. The King James Version calls it a still, small voice. When I was 19 years old, long before I read that line in the first book of Kings, I went on a road trip through Michigan with a friend, and we happened across a sign advertising the world's largest wooden crucifix. 
I've always been fond of roadside attractions, especially world's largest ones. I've seen everything from the world's largest ball of stamps to the world's largest ball of paint. And so we stopped at a place called Cross in the Woods. I was tired and a bit, little bit hungover, but it felt good to stretch my legs after hours in the car. Back then, I only wanted to enjoy things ironically. Ironic enthusiasm felt safer to me than sincerity, and also more honest. The world was a joke, and a cruel one. So they stop at the crucifix, he says, and then looking up at the crucifix, all at once I was overwhelmed by a feeling I could not name. I would later hear it described as the Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans, the mystery before which we tremble and are fascinated. I was consumed by awe, not just wonder, but also fear. It wasn't a comfortable feeling, nor an entirely pleasant one, but I didn't want it to end. I felt as if I were very small. I don't know if that feeling came from within or without, and I don't really care. Whether I created it in my brain or not, it was real. I literally fell to my knees. I couldn't help myself. And then in a moment he describes that, he describes the Mysterium Tremendum um, by saying, The distance you've tried to create between yourself and the world falls away, and you are left exposed to the beauty and horror of mortal consciousness. One more thing, I know this is long, but this is important. He says, so I was kneeling, looking up at this overwrought roadside attraction, and I heard a still, small voice whisper, you'll be okay. That was it. You'll be okay. These days, when my daughter whispers to me, it is usually to share a worry that she finds embarrassing or frightening. It takes courage even to whisper those fears, and I am so grateful when she trusts me with them, even if I don't know quite how to answer. Often I find myself responding to her whispers with the only words I've ever heard God say. You'll be okay, I tell her. You'll be okay. So the reason I think that's so important, and I think it's important to bring up John Green at all, is I think that there's a really stark difference between John Green and Wallace. Which is that Wallace is constantly saying, you know, this isn't religion. Um, this isn't religious. This isn't dogmatic. You know, everything we've been saying. Because he can't admit that it is. And then... John Green says that he, he describes basically the same experience, right? He says that irony, that he only wanted to enjoy things ironically, um, that ironic enthusiasm was safer. And then he has this experience where he stands before this wooden crucifix and he falls to his knees and he can't help himself. And he wants to be there ironically. He wants to experience it ironically. And instead he hears the voice of God and the voice of God tells him, you'll be okay. And he says, when he talks about responding to his daughter, he says he responds with the only words he's ever heard God say. And he doesn't qualify that. He doesn't say, now, nobody knows if that's true or not. I don't know if that's really the voice of God. He just says it is. And he doesn't try to apologize for that or, or qualify it in some way. And I think that's the difference, is that John Green, that experience somehow cures him of the need for things to be ironic. And he's willing to be vulnerable in his sincerity in confessing or admitting that he hears this voice of God before the crucifix. And Wallace just wouldn't admit that. He wouldn't do that. And there's somehow that irony is a block between him and God. Somehow. What do you think, Trent? I think that irony is so connected to cynicism that I think you're exactly right. I think that if you do view things ironically, it is difficult to be earnest. 
And I think, I mean, just another example of that in comedy is, I'm going to talk about Bo Burnham. Um, He, (laughs) I think, he is probably the pinnacle of this idea in our modern culture of comedy being centered in treating things ironically and being cynical about them. And I know one thing that he always says, it's kind of his MO, is that being self-aware does not absolve anyone of anything. But even when you hear that or, or you think about it, it always makes you feel like it does absolve you of something. If you do something wrong, but you know that it was wrong, at least it's okay. It's kind of the entire commencement idea that Wallace is getting across that if you were in line and you were getting angry at people, but at least you knew that you were getting angry at them and it, you you shouldn't be getting angry at them. Probably they've done nothing wrong. Like if you were to say that afterwards, you'd feel like, oh, I'm still a good person. At least I can recognize, you know, that I did get angry at them and I shouldn't have. But it doesn't absolve you of being angry at them. And I think that that's exactly what irony does. And that's what cynicism does is it it masks your actions and it makes you feel that you have been absolved of them and i think that humor does the same thing if you make fun of something you feel that you are a part of or not a part of it yeah not not Mm -hmm. a part of it you're a part of a, a broad community that can recognize we are not going to be associated with that that is earnestness. That is vulnerability. We are not doing that. That is not who we are. We are tough. We are strong. And we are good people. But irony, the thing is, irony feels good. And actually, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing in and of itself in the some, in some sense because it gives you the ability to identify flaws and problems. And that's exactly what Wallace used irony and John Green uses irony. It's like that's kind of what humorous comedy is. It's mm-hmm. like you can expose the foibles of things, but the problem is is that it's addictive. And that's why I think I think this is Wallace's most profound idea, and this is what exactly what he said in the interview, is that the Latin root of addict is adicere, which means religious devotion, which is true. That's that is what where it comes from. Mm-hmm. It means and that's his chief insight, is that like you can't not worship something. You have to worship something. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like you were saying is that he just won't narrow it down, you know? And which is understandable. I mean, like that's kind of the the, the 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 modern sentiment that we have towards religion. And I guess, in a nutshell, that's a way of calling that is moral therapeutic deism, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you should believe in God or a God or something that's good, the highest good. And and this is kind of what Jordan Peter do, Peterson does a lot. It's a you know it's a psychological thing. Like it's psychologically healthy for you to do that. Mm-hmm. And just to go back to what he. His quote, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan uh, Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, yada, yada, yada. Interestingly, he doesn't say Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He calls him JC, which is like... Ironic. Ironic. (laughs) He's trying to kind of gloss over it. Like... um, like this not only is I mean he's, he's going farther than just saying Jesus is just one great moral teacher he's just kind of like a nickname 
Good old JC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so. I think it's so interesting that he is not willing to say Jesus Christ, you know, as something, as a legitimate form of worship. And I think that there is just a real hesitancy, particularly of Christianity. I mean, like Steve Jobs, heck, Steve Jobs got really into Buddhism, you know, mm-hmm. which is actually kind of a popular thing. And Chesterton pointed that out. It's like, you know, the West really likes the mysticism of the East. It's kind of cool uh, to get into that sort of thing. It's not cool to get into Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's a jealous If you get into God. Eastern Orthodoxy, you can get into both. <laughs> I'd like to point out. <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> My point is that he's a jealous God. And that's, I think people don't like the fact that he's a jealous God. Um, mm-hmm. and like, you know, to go back to, I, I guess not really, he wouldn't call himself the father of existentialism, but Soren Kierkegaard says that the purity of heart is to will one thing and to will anything else is to be double-minded. Mm-hmm. And that is the opposite of being ironic because iro- irony is everything, you know, mm-hmm. and nothing at the same time. But to, to escape from that is to say, no, okay, maybe everything is false, but one thing, at least one thing is true. And I don't know, is Wallace actually embracing that in some deep sense i don't i don't know if that's like i'm not sure if i'm, I'm willing to say well maybe i should say <laughs> maybe i should say no he doesn't <laughs> or maybe i shouldn't because like if you are moved by a religious experience is that i mean as opposed to not being moved at all isn't that a kind of belief or a kind of act of faith is to admit that that moves you um right because I mean, you, you mentioned John Green as kind of being like a deeper step than David Foster Wallace. But I mean, I've heard him kind of talk kind of like about the loosey-goosey religious tolerance of all religions in, in some sense, too. But he, is, he, he does say that he claims to go to church. So I guess he does it. He's a li- he takes it a little bit farther than Wallace. But like, at least he's willing to admit that this religious experience, like had some kind of import or significance to it. To it. Yeah. Well, that, that he calls it the voice of God, and there's no trace of irony in that. Mm-hmm. That he's contrasting that with his ironic enjoyment of things. He says, okay, so this is how I was. I thought of everything ironically. I wanted to enjoy things ironically. But also I'm going to call this the voice of God. And he doesn't make jokes about that. That's serious. And that's, I think, the thing that's so that's different, that that puts him into a better spot. Not the best spot. <laughs> um, I don't think he, I don't know whether I'd call him a Christian. He would call himself a Christian. I don't know if I would call him a Christian. I don't, you know, I don't know John Green well enough to, to be able to, I don't know his heart, but that I think right. puts him in a better place than Wallace, who isn't willing to narrow it down at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... He is willing to say that this is water. Yes. We can which say I this guess, is water. Which I guess is a metaphor for him in some sense. Or a a way of saying something, making a dogmatic statement, but he's kind of masking it again in irony because he's making a dogmatic statement poetically, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, isn't isn't it true that saying this is water is just another way of saying I am aware... I am aware. I'm awake. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of my surroundings. 
and really only of my surroundings. And it's in able you're able to interpret it because if you're a Christian and you hear that and you're saying to yourself, this is water, this is water all the time, you're saying, I am surrounded by people who are made in the image of God. Right? That's what you mean when you say this is water. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to be aware of who you are and the world that you live in. If you're not a Christian, um, saying this is water might mean, like, reminding yourself of the fact that you get to construct the meaning of the world around you by telling yourself stories about the people, you know, things like that. It means different things to different people. So I think it's maybe intentionally able to be interpreted in different ways. But I kind of think saying this is water at the end just means be aware of your surroundings whatever that means to you. And he's kind of hoping that'll mean a certain thing to you, but he's not going to tell you that it should. This is water. This This is is water. water. And this is unreliable narrative. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. (laughs) Amazing. Did you get two glasses of water for this episode? You put that in I planned that. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's the one that you put by my computer. So much water in the house. Yeah. All the water. That's so true. Weird. All right. Well, raise a glass to freedom. Cheers, Trinity. Cheers. I'll Let's cheers with someone else's right water. That's Actually, my water. Your water. This is water. This is water. This is water. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. You took my water. <laughs> I didn't drink it. I didn't drink it. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Docapel and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the 1957 Swedish historical fantasy film The Seventh Seal, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Until then, friends, remember, this is water. This is water. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide That's not water. That's not water. That's not water. About 75% of you are. That is so not true because what I have actually is water. Let me read you the ingredients. (laughs) Seltzer. Carbonated water. Ooh. And granted, natural flavor, but mostly it's entirely water. Okay, but, but, but this. This This is water. Water. (laughs) Water.